Hello, and welcome to part two of my interview with Ken Rubin, the author of Essential Scrum. And how important is the role of leadership in making that work? In my opinion, it's critical, right? I mean, leadership, uh, there's a number of things that go wrong when it comes to leadership and implementing Scrum. Uh, Probably the biggest is that leadership believes that somehow it's other people's responsibility to embrace Agile. You know, say it another way, it's about them, it's not about us. It's about the development guys over there. They're doing Agile. We don't have to worry about that stuff over here. That doesn't work so well. Agile has tentacles. It reaches out. It touches different parts of the organization. So this idea that somehow that the leadership doesn't have to be involved uh, just doesn't work. You have huge disconnects. I mean, the obvious one would be leadership in IT or development saying things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you guys can go off and do Agile. That's, that's fine. You can go build it in an Agile-like way. By the way, I'm still going to require all the same artifacts you historically had to provide me in order to approve your project. So that means I'm going to need the full requirements document, the full project plan up on the wall, the full resource loading, the full risk model. I'll need all that on the first day when you have the worst possible knowledge you're ever going to have. Go. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's obviously a disconnect. So leadership has to understand that it's the core agile principles that pervade the organization. That's what I'm interested in. And so another mistake I think they make is that they don't include themselves in the training. Hmm. Now, years ago, that was prevalent. These days, less so. I've done this year alone at least 10 classes that only were for senior management. I mean, that is a big change over Hmm. three or four years ago where – I mean, the best I could hope to get three or four years ago would be 90 minutes over lunchtime during a scrum class. Right. Yeah. Leadership has to eat also, right? Bring food in the room and we'll, we'll chat for 90 minutes. You know what? And it, it's like precisely 90 minutes good. It's not a day good. It's not a full day good. It is like 90 minutes good. Now, you mentioned earlier that part of the, the most important thing that you, you convey to the leadership is the economic view. Um, and... And and you mentioned that they were they're pretty receptive to that. Now, in following through with that, do they are they able to follow through, or do they agree? And then when it comes to doing it, they kind of go back to what they're used to. So, good and bad in that discussion. First, they all get it, right? It's weird. You'll sit in the room and you'll you'll start talking about the economic principles and how they apply, and then you'll watch like a, sometimes I get the CEO in the room or a COO. This person, like, she'll spin around and look at her colleagues and go, do we do that? Are we doing that today? Or why aren't we doing that today, right? And so you can see that the lights are like, hmm, yeah, that that does kind of make sense. Maybe we should be doing it. Now, does that mean that they run off and do it? No. I mean, I remember one executive, uh, uh, that's why I'll describe it as the execs were in the same class with the development team. Mm-hmm. It was a two-day class. And at one point, an engineer in the class said, yeah, we'll never do that. To whatever I was saying at the point, at the moment, we'll never do that. The CEO of the class is in the class. He spins around. He says this. Look, I'm not saying we're going to run off and go do that tomorrow. But I'm saying it's on the table for discussion. I'm like, I'm feeling comfortable already. Right. You don't have to agree immediately you're going to go run off and do all this stuff, but at least be willing to engage people in a reasonable dialogue. That's what I'm looking to get the leadership to go for now. Look, they have to run their own business. They have a lot of constraints, many of which I don't even know about. 
right? So when I'm in there working with them, I'm trying to help them get an agile mindset. That to me is the critical piece, right? Whether they use Scrum or they use something else is less interesting to me, quite honestly. It's the agile mindset that they have and their ability to apply, which is why I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say one of those things that you bring up in the book, and maybe you can address it, is this whole notion of eliminating waste, uh, and and why? So there's a couple of things I'd like you to address here that that comes to you know that that's really I think really hard for leadership to grasp. One is this whole notion of limiting work in progress. Why is that so difficult? You know, when you bring up uh, metaphors like a freeway, like if you if you stuff as many cars on the freeway as possible, uh, what would that do to the speed of travel? Right. Everybody gets that. But when it goes to implementing it, it's a very difficult thing to to say we're going to limit the amount of work in progress. And in fact, I'm going to have a blog post coming out in another week or so on this. I just finished writing it. Um, and the, the idea behind it is that the it's so the, the argument for why they should limit whip is so counterintuitive that most people won't do it. Mm. Uh, 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 here, here's why it's so counterintuitive. Right. Think about it this way. Uh, here's what this here's what the conversation is going to sound like. And then we can address why it's true. A stakeholder comes to an executive. I really need you to get my project done immediately. The executive says, understood. Yeah, but I'm not going to be able to start your project for three months. But don't worry. We'll actually get your project done faster and at a higher quality level if we wait three months to start it than if we started it today. Mm. Stakeholder, how in the world can that be possible that you'll get my project done sooner if you don't start working on it for three months? Executive, because our teams are currently working at capacity on the highest priority work, and when they finish that, we'll swarm the necessary teams onto your project. That way they can stay focused and get yours done quickly with their full attention and get it done at a higher quality level than if we just throw your project into the current mix and start working on it as well. Doing that would just slow everything down, including your project and its quality. So that's the discussion that an executive would have to have. Mm-hmm. And it's completely counterintuitive because you're basically telling to a stakeholder, not now. I'm not going to work on yours now, but don't worry. If I work on it later, if I start yours later, I'll actually get it done faster. That's the part that's counterintuitive. And the way I get them past that is in my classes, especially if I have executives, I do a a calligraphy exercise. It's a well-known exercise. A lot of people do it. Um, But basically, I have them, you know, form teams. One person's a calligrapher on the team. The other people are customers. Every team's opening up a store. The goal of the store is to transcribe people's names into nice calligraphy on Post-it notes. And I just do two rounds. In the first round, our store has a policy. Never let a customer wait. So basically, if you're the calligrapher, you have to work on everybody's card at the same time. Round robin, right? A letter per name, per card. And in round two, we redo the exercise. This time, we tell the calligrapher you have a whip limit of one. You're one calligrapher. Work on one card at a time. When you finish it, you can move on to the next person in the queue and work on their card and so on. And they run the exercise. And what they find is when they run the exercise, more than half the time when I do this, more than half of the – sorry – 100% of the time, half of the teams or more get everything done in round two 
before they get anything completed in round one, hmm. which baffles most people, meaning they get all the cards for all the customers done in round two before they finish the calligraphy on the first card in round one. So that's my argument back is that – so I, what I have these people do is I have them play calligraphy and I go, I've just illustrated to you why. I'm going to be able to get your project done faster if I don't start working on it now, right? Because I'll get all the projects done faster, right? So uh, – but it's counterintuitive. So this whip limit thing blows apart most companies. And you know it's true because all you have to do is ask this question. Do you think your company is working on too many projects at one time or are you working on the proper number? I've yet to meet the person who's like, oh, no, we're working on the delightful number. It is exactly the right number we should be working on. Mm. It's not that way. All companies are working on too many projects at the same time. They have failed to obey their whip limit of how many projects or value streams or call it whatever you want, products, whatever they're working on, they're doing too many of it at the same time. Yeah, that definitely is, is I think, ranks as one of the, the, the you know, the, the, the problem that, leadership faces the most another one um i I was going to ask you about is you know scrum and any kind of uh any kind of uh, adaptive sort of method that we use requires that we do a lot of exploratory work uh and leadership i think oftentimes has a issue with that they just want us to go out and build it build the real thing build the thing that people want uh and it's counterintuitive to say we're going to actually finance the exploratory type of work. What, what's been your experience with that? So uh, this is actually a, a super critical topic, and this is where the economic framework maybe shines its brightest. So if here's how I look at exploratory work. Uh, I, I refer to it as knowledge acquisition. Buying information, prototyping, proof of concept, study, experiment, spike, Use your favorite term. They all mean the same thing to me. It's the act of buying information. That's all prototyping is. If you knew what to build, you wouldn't build a prototype. You would just go build the thing, right? You're going to do the prototype because you believe that the value of the information you're going to get exceeds the cost of getting it. It's purely an economic argument. So if I'm a product owner, if I'm, a, if I'm the people who control the money, and someone comes to me and I go, and they go, we have two options, A and B. We don't know which one is better. And I'm like, okay, well, how do you want to proceed? Well, we're going to have to make a choice sooner rather than later because we can't get into this project very far until we make this choice. Maybe it's a fundamental architectural choice. I'm like, all right, we'll choose one. Well, we don't have enough knowledge to choose. So here I am management saying choose. And they're like, we can't. We don't know which is the right option. So then you'd say this, well, what do you propose? Well, you know, in the first sprint, what we'd like to do is we'll have the entire team uh, work together and we'll create a quick and dirty prototype of option A and option B. And we'll run a series of tests across them and we'll collect the data. And based on the results of those tests, we'll have a better idea of whether A or B is a better choice. Now, here's the good news. They just gave me half of the economic equation. They told me they wanted the entire team to do this for a sprint. Well, I know who's on the team. And I know the duration of the sprint. So I need five minutes with HR or finance, and they're going to give me back an aggregate number that tells me how much is it going to cost for the team to do that work. I'll make up a number, $20,000. So they just told me it's going to cost $20,000 to buy this information. The only question I have to answer at this point is, what is the information worth? 
All right. And so the obvious way of doing that in this example would have been, all right, I'm just going to flip a coin. If the coin, if it comes up heads, we're going with option A. If it comes up tails, we're going to go with B. Let's say I flip the coin. We choose. We start building down that path. And we're wrong. What's going to be the cost of having to unwind off of that path and build down the other path? And, you know, and the team is not going to give me a precise answer here. I just need ballpark. You know, what if they come back and they go, oh, if we flip and we choose, we go down the wrong path, we have to unwind, come down the other path. Wow, it's, it's, that could be like a half million dollar mistake. Okay, now I have the economic equation set up. Should I be willing to spend 20K to avoid an error that has an expected value of $250,000? Because in that example, half the time we'd have flipped a coin, we'd have been right. So the expected value of that outcome is 250. And as I said earlier, once you set up the economic equation, is one as one as well as long as one side is overwhelming in comparison to the other, the decision just got made. So now management should have absolutely no problem sitting there going, "Yeah, I'm willing to spend twenty thousand dollars to avoid an error that has an expected value of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars." What sane individual wouldn't do that? Hmm. So how do I handle you know knowledge acquisition? exploratory work it's the act of buying information you want to buy information make the economic argument if you can make the economic argument for why it's worth buying the information i'll do it if you can't we won't if they come back and said you know if we flip and we choose we're down the wrong path we'll figure that out pretty quickly and we'll just redirect to the other path it'd be like a fifteen thousand dollar mistake well nobody's going to spend twenty thousand dollars to avoid an error that has an expected value seventy five hundred dollars welcome coin flipping right i mean so as long as one side is overwhelming compared to the other, the decision's made. Hmm. When they're the same, it doesn't matter. Flip the coin. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I'm trying to see how this even applies to another thorny issue, which is what should be the cardinality between scrum masters and team members, right? I get this a lot because I deal with with um, with applying Agile at scale. And so teams or executives are looking at, hey, I've got... I've got, uh, let's say, 100 teams, and I don't want to have 100 scrum masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're thinking, can I get away with maybe one scrum master for every five teams, and that way I'll only need 25 scrum masters? How do you, how do you uh, use the economic framework here to answer something like that? Well, in this particular example... I think there's two factors that uh, have to be thought through. One is, you know, do you re- do you believe that being a scrum master is a full time gig, right? If you if you, let's say you do, just for the sake of argument, mm-hmm. then if you have a hundred teams, you ought to have a hundred scrum masters, because if it's a full time gig to be a scrum master, then clearly asking one person to scrum master more than one team would put that person over capacity. So the first the first thing you have to think about here is what is the capacity of somebody in the role of scrum master. All right. So that would be question number one. Is the scrum master always a full time job? No, because that gets me to the second point. Then what are the factors that might influence this? Well, first of all, how big are your teams? Arguably, it would take less effort to help coach a three person team than it would a nine person team. I think most people would agree with that, including anybody in management would agree with that. The second question, of course, is how long have these people been together as a team? If we just formed a new Scrum team in an organization that is brand new to Agile and therefore has not had the opportunity to remove a lot of the low-hanging impediment fruit, you might very easily argue it's a full-time job. 
On the other hand, smaller team, been together for a year and a half, high-performing agile team, organization's done a good job about eliminating impediments, then it's probably not a full-time job. So it is about the economics at some level, but it's also being sensible. The economic argument is going to sound like this. I'm sorry, you want me to do what? Did you actually just stand there and tell me you wanted me to add another 100 headcount to my organization Mm -hmm. so that I could be Scrum Master for each team? You can be guaranteed that discussion is going to happen in every company, Mm. right? I mean, I I helped a company last year move 90 teams over to Agile, over to Scrum, right? They were doing a customized version of SAFE at a higher level, their own unique version like we talked about earlier. But they wanted to move 90 teams over. And the VP's comment was basically that. I'm sorry, what? You want me to add 90 people, 90 more headcount to my organization? Yeah, that ain't going to happen. And then he went on and said this. Isn't a Scrum Master really just a 20% allocation of somebody off of the development team? Look, I'm fully prepared to acknowledge the Scrum Master may not always be a full-time job. I'm not prepared to acknowledge it's a 20% allocation. So in my world, no, I don't think one person Scrum Masters five teams. Right. And if they are scrum mastering more than one team, chances are they're on the same product development effort or in the same value stream or in in the safe world on the same release train. Mm -hmm. Right. Because trying to do it across release trains would just be much more difficult. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, clearly the economics factors in, but there's got to be some, you know, some sanity to this Mm -hmm. discussion at some level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's a, a good place to start. Um, but yeah, these are definitely the thorny uh, management issues. Another one uh, is the, the whole how do you measure progress, right? Um, this one comes up over and over. And so I want to get your take on that. Uh, you know, one of the annual surveys that comes up, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, is the version one state of agile uh, that comes out. And in the latest one, they talked about how a lot of initiatives are now being measured by business value. Rather than saying, you know, we've spent X number of story points uh, to build something, they say, well, how much business value did we act, you know, did we deliver? And I want to get your take on that. Uh, How do you actually measure business value? So let's say you build a feature. Uh, Let's say you you build a a feature that that we're all familiar with, the the way, the ability for a smartphone, for instance, to turn itself into a Wi-Fi hotspot some feature like that, how would you go about measuring or how would you recommend we go about measuring the business value delivered? Would you would you start with dollar figures? I'm just curious what your answer is. So, okay, I'm going to get, uh, I will eventually answer this question. Let me just set a little foundational piece that I'll mm-hmm. need. Um, the version one study, right, at least version 10, you know, the version one 10th annual version of this survey had business value is number four on their list. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. Number four at 46%. Above that are proxy variables, on-time delivery, product quality, customer slash user satisfaction. Below that is productivity, project visibility. Most of the elements on how do we measure success of these initiatives are using output measures, not outcome measures, which is, in my opinion, what's holding us back. Uh, that if you go online and you start looking for uh, you know, case studies of agile success stories, I promise you, almost every case study you're going to read, they're going to quote their success in output measures. 
And those are the wrong things to be quoting them in. I mean, output measures are the obvious things, cycle time, throughput. The king of them all is velocity, right? And I mean, there's stuff like we get, you know, twice as much done with half the people, right? That's a 400% increase in velocity. And it, boy, it sounds good, right? But I don't know. But what if a team gets a 400% increase in velocity and the end result, it produces the same junk that it's been producing for years. It just now produces that same junk 400% faster. So I've never bought into this idea that someone quotes me that, you know, my team is now 400% faster in its velocity. And my comment is, and what value did the business get for that? Right. Because if all you're doing is producing junk 400 percent faster, nothing. So switch over now to outcome measures. Now, business value, you could argue, is a generalized way of talking about outcome measures. Right now, I did a blog post about this back in January called Output Versus Outcome, Measuring Business Success with Agile, uh, because it's that important. Right. That outcome measures have to be tied to the key metrics of the business and therefore would, def would depend on what your company does. Different companies measure, might measure it different ways. I mean, net promoter score is an example outcome measure, right? Most people believe that if they can improve net promoter score, they make more money. But profitability would be the king of all you know, outcome measures. Are you more profitable? But you can't always say that, right? Because you know, what if you're a nonprofit, right? Is profitability really how you want to measure it. Well, if you're Bill Gates with a nonprofit, you might say, you know, eliminated, you know, or dropped the incident of malaria around the world from, you know, 6% down to three. I'm, I'm guessing that's a pretty darn good outcome measure, right? Something that people can latch onto a great outcome or eliminated that disease altogether. So to the original question, you know, someone wants to, add, wants to evaluate the business value of doing something. Well, you have to put it back into the economic framework. And in the economic framework, we convert all proxy variables. This is a, an idea that was promoted by uh, Don Reinerston, right? Promote, you convert all proxy variables into life cycle profit space. So if someone walks in, like, so for example, customer satisfaction is number three on the version one study. Someone walks into my office and they say, Here, here's, the, here's the problem that the economic framework is going to help me solve. Someone walks into your office, they go, do my project first. You're like, why? Mine will generate $500,000 of revenue in Q2. Someone else walks into your office. No, do mine first. Why? Mine increases customer satisfaction by 5%. The first and obvious question is, which is the better project? Which one should we do first? In the spirit of we can't do them all because we don't have the resources because we're whip limiting ourselves. So which should we do first? Which one are we going to delay? Well, obviously, there are non-comparable units of measure. One is in revenue and the other is in customer sat units. The problem is I have to convert those into a normalized unit of measure, life cycle profits in this case. So basically what I would say to the customer sat guy is, that sounds really cool. Uh, what's a 1% increase in customer sat worth in life cycle profits? Because that's an outcome measure. And, and if he's like, uh, I don't know. I'm like, okay, get out of my office. I, I don't know how to evaluate your project. Go out and calculate, look at our historic data, find out what a 1% increase in customer sat is worth and come tell me about that. And if the end result is, I mean, what if the end result is that an improvement in customer sat leads to no additional customers and it doesn't reduce our churn at all? We're going to lose the same amount of customers and we're not going to gain any more if we have better customer sat. Then why would I spend $1 working on a project that improved customer sat?
Hmm. It doesn't affect an outcome measure that matters to me. And the outcome measure here would have been life cycle profits. So we're measuring, most companies are measuring the wrong thing. Hmm. What you want to do is look at what are the key gauges on the dashboard of the business that executive management needs to manage. And then your goal is to figure out things like what agile, agile measures can I have, some of which are going to be output measures, can I actually measure and then correlate those back to changes on the outcome gauges. And if you can't do the correlation, then I don't know why you're collecting the data. So if you can show me why a 400% increase in velocity leads to a, a material change on an outcome measure gauge, I'm all in. But telling me that we're going four times faster at delivering stuff, when what I could be doing is reducing customer satisfaction because we're putting out more junk, losing more customers, that doesn't give me what I need. You have to correlate it to something that matters to me. Hmm. So that's how I address this problem. Yeah, and so in that same example, so let's just uh, say I I increase quality, not velocity, but I increase quality four hundred percent. But at the same time, I can't really correlate it to profitability. Um, would that also be output rather than outcome in your mind? So quality has a couple of issues. If you can't correlate it, I mean, what if someone said? The quality of our product measured somehow is 10% better this year than last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I don't doubt for a moment we can come up with some surrogate measure of that. How many defects are in the product right. that we know about, right? Uh, or customer sat, right? Higher quality, you would think, would yield greater customer sat. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't know that that's true because if you're 400% faster putting really junky features into your product, your customer sat actually goes down as your velocity went up. All right. So you really have to have the big picture in mind about how you're going to deal with this in improvement in quality. But the obvious approach would be if an increase in quality can be shown to drive more sales. Right. And have less churn. Then I'm interested in measuring my quality. I think most organizations are obviously interested in measuring quality. I'm not sure that they've done the job that they need to do to correlate that to an outcome measure. They're doing it based on intuition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess what I was uh, thinking of is that some of these are leading indicators of mm-hmm. future better outcome, uh, and and we may not see them for a while, right? So, for, in other words, if you increase quality 400%, it, it's not going to immediately result in higher profitability in the same PI, let's say. Right. That's what I'm thinking, that that this is something that's going to take a long time to show that it's, it's a leading indicator of future profitability at best. Right. Uh, look, I, I want to have those leading indicators as well. Mm-hmm. Right. That you know, it's hard to measure after the fact that you've had a huge decline in revenue and then realize after the fact why you did it mm-hmm. when you could have possibly prevented that. So. Uh, it's really knowing what you're going to do with the data mm. and how it will affect, you know, actionable steps. And to me, at the end of the day, when there's so many different things we could measure, what I'm very interested in, because at the end of the day, I, you may be from years ago, Mike Cohn and I worked on something called comparative agility. Um, we, we don't work on it anymore. We handed it off to another team to run with it. But for four years, we had this thing called comparative agility where you would take a survey and it would tell you how agile you are. 
it would compare you against, I think there's probably close to 17,000 other people have already taken the survey. And the idea was it gave you an idea of like eight different agile dials, agile gauges, hmm. but they weren't outcome measures of the company. It still left the interesting work for anybody who took that survey to correlate changes on the agile gauges to actual outcome changes of the business gauges. Hmm. Right. So the first thing I do when I go into a company and they start talking about all this stuff they're going to collect and measure is I say this, what are the important business variables that you measure today? What do you measure? How do you know if your business is doing better now than if it was a year ago? And it could be things like share price, right? Things like that. But what do you measure? What do you look at to know whether or not you're better today than you were last year in terms of your business progressing? Whatever the whatever those gauges are, let's bend, let's baseline them right now. Hmm. The current measures, because obviously, if you're going to start doing agile, which someone's going to ask you six months from now is, are am I getting any you know any return on investment for this large effort I just did to move all these teams over to agile? And I'd like to be able to answer that by saying. Well, let's look at the business gauges, because at the end of the day, that should be the only thing that mattered. Hmm. And what kind of lead time would you give? To, I mean, for a legitimate sort of comparison, uh, so a company going to Agile, and how long does it take to be able to, to, to see that kind of a change in benefit ROI? So in, in smaller startup companies, the benefit could be almost instantaneous. In larger companies, they'll probably do more of an annual cycle mm. just to get feel for it, right? Because that's how their planning mentality tends to work. Um, output measures, you're going to have very quick data in that area, which is why a lot of people latch on to them. Mm. I mean, the people who talk about increasing velocity 400% will say, you know, after n number of sprints, I can have your teams 400% faster. Well, that means they measure velocity at the end of the first sprint as a baseline and and number of sprints in the future, they're measuring velocity again. So you can very quickly get output data, mm -hmm. right? And you know whether or not I'm producing more stuff and even get leading indicators as to whether I'll produce even more stuff in the future. Knowing that it had an impact on your business depends on what kind of business you're in, right? Certain businesses, uh, the dials on their gauges can move quicker than in other businesses, right? Just because of the nature of what they do. If you're a small startup company and your goal is to, you know, get customers signed up and paying you revenue, you know, changes like that can happen very, very quickly. Hmm. You know, if you're a big company on an enterprise system, that may take longer to, to be able to realize. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. So uh, just want to change gears now, Ken, and talk about the, the agile profession itself. Uh, you mentioned that you've been in this space for 10 years. I'm just curious, when you started uh, as an Agile coach, you know, going full-time in this space, how many other people were there that, that had switched careers and, and said that they were Agile coaches and trainers? It was a very small community at that time, especially – so think about what really existed. At that time, it was really just the Scrum Alliance, right? You know, other organizations – hadn't yet formed and, in and that, that area. was and even that was uh, just and, a few years old right right it, it was a few years old it was sort of a nascent organization um, I think when I joined the organization there was about 12,000 certified scrum masters in the world now there's close to a half a million hmm. right so it's grown quite a bit I mean by the end of uh, the first year we've grown by a hundred percent right uh, 
in terms of, I think we had closer to 25,000 by the end of uh, that, my tenure as, as managing director of 2007. And the coaching program, the formal coaching program got developed during 2007. Mm. It's one of the things we did during that year. So there wasn't a lot of people that even had the title. There were people who were doing it, of course. Right. Right? You didn't have to have the title to be doing it. You were just doing it. Uh, here, here's what I think when I, when I think of this whole thing. Um, for me, it was a natural thing to do because I'd been doing it for years, this idea of coaching and being out there and doing training. It was something I'd done for years at Park Place and had done it at other companies. At IBM, I ran a 130-person consulting group where we'd go around and do this stuff. So it, it's really a combination of skills that come together. Um, the thing I'm seeing going wrong today, a lot of people are hanging out the coaching shingle. Uh, and they may have a good solid six months of experience at one company doing coaching. The, the thing you have to ask is, is that a sufficient base of experience, right, to be effective in that role? If you've done it really well for a company for a year or two, I've seen some people have done it at one company for three years. That's certainly better, more experience, but it's only been one company, though. So you, you don't get to see different types of impediments. You see that company's impediment. So mm -hmm. I would think that if you're going to hang out a coaching shingle, you're going to need to have coached. This is the chicken and the egg problem, right? You're going to want to have worked with a number of different companies to do it. Mm -hmm. So the likely path I see is that someone's been a coach internally at a larger company for some period of time, maybe as little as six months, maybe three years. And then they decide that they really like this. And they want to do it more generally with other companies. And they leave. They hang out the coaching shingle. Uh, and some of them have, are, are a better positioned to do it than others. Um, and then they'll get eventually multiple clients worth of experience. And those are the people you really want to engage with because they've seen enough, right? They've seen enough examples, not all of them, but enough that they can see patterns that start to form. Mm. Mm. But it's only half the equation because I'll give you the other half. Some people have the experience, but have absolutely zero coaching skills, hmm. right? They just can't do it. I, I ran into a company earlier this year where a person that I know was in there before um, has really strong experience, right? Author of a book even. Uh, so really understands Agile fundamentally, but by the time I got on the phone to talk to this company, I'm like, well, at first I was just confused. I'm like, I'm sorry, why are we talking? You already are working with somebody uh, who's pretty well known. Uh, they've already been in there training you and doing coaching. So why would you kind of you know, change horses at this point? Would just stay with the person you're with. They already have all that knowledge of working with you. That would seem like the right thing to do. Well, the problem was, that I think the best way I could describe it was uh, we can't have this person back. Uh, last time they were here, I spent weeks trying to repair the damage to <laughs> by calling every calling out every decision we made as just wrong, mm. like either completely wrong or completely right. So with this person, it was always black and white, and there was never any gray area or nuanced interpretation. Mm. So he's like. You know, when the guy left, he's like, I spent weeks, you know, he derailed my entire organization and it became a real problem. It's like, well, we can't have this person back in here anymore. Mm. So here's a person who clearly knows their stuff, but took this attitude of, you know, I understand what's right or wrong. Context be damned. 
right? So the, the fact that you're a unique company with your own context doesn't factor into this. You're doing that. That is wrong. Stop doing that, right? Kind of attitude. That's not – so you could argue having the requisite knowledge, having seen a lot of examples – isn't sufficient. You actually have to have good coaching skills. You have to be able to evaluate what's going on. And, and the other thing I find is that a lot of coaches I meet actually believe they were brought in to solve somebody's problem. Mm. My attitude about coaching is I'm not here to solve your problem for you. I am here to help you solve your own problem now, but I'm not going to solve it for you. And, and a lot of people think they're being high, they're the hired gun that was brought in to, you know, obviously, guys, you're not going to be able to sort this problem out. It's way too complex for you. So let me come in. And I'll just tell you the answer. Uh, good coaches don't do that. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm seeing a lot more of this unfortunate, you know, hey, I hung out the coaching shingle and I'm ready to go coach. Hmm. And some of them are. A lot of them aren't. Yeah. And it's amazing how this uh, this call it a profession has been increasing because I got involved in it in 2008. And I would say at that time, uh, I was, you know, on LinkedIn, very few people would, you know, put their title as a enterprise agile coach or something like that. Now it just seems to be the default title for, for so many people that, uh, you know, are project managers, they've kind of changed that to, to agile coach, but yeah, definitely it's a growing, uh, growing profession. And now, as far as your own growth, as far as your own current projects, uh, any any current projects you you got going right now that uh, you care to share with us? Uh, embarrassingly, yes, uh, because I'm going to exceed my own whip limit, <laughs> which is uh, what the, the embarrassing part is. Uh, videos are my next really big thing, and I have a video uh, – a video class I put together already. It's pretty much ready to go. I just have to get it loaded up and, and do the, the appropriate launch of that course. And I have another one that's going to go follow in quick succession to that. Another one I've been working on for a while is the Agile Portfolio Management one, which is why I was saying earlier it's such an important topic because mm-hmm. most people really need to get into this. Um, I've also been approached to do an, uh, an audio book, not an audio version of Essential Scrum, I've contemplated doing that for years, but as I said earlier, with 208 impactful graphics, I was having a hard time wrapping my mind around how do I do an audio version of a book that so heavily relies on the visual aspect. Uh, and someone helped me get past that by saying, you know, basically it's got to be content specific for audio. So that's on the list also. Uh, and just a slew of other uh, projects that for me that I, I've been wanting to work on for quite some time. Uh, but those are the, those are the ones at the top of the queue. Mm. Well, um, and where can people find you on the internet? Where's a good place to, to kind of get your you know latest and greatest happenings? So the, the place where all the knowledge is being uh, sort of stored is at my website at innolution.com. So yeah, that's I N N O L U T I O N.com. And that's where all the blog posts go and um, my glossary is up there. That's where you can get the visual agile lexicon from there. Uh, the other place would be, I guess, to follow me on Twitter. Um, that's simple. It's just at K Rubin uh, Agile, all one word. Excellent. Well, Ken, I really appreciate you taking the time. And, um, you know, one of these days I'm going to attend one of your, your talks, your seminars. I know you're you're on the talking circuit as well. Um, is there is there a conference coming up where you're going to be speaking in the next several months? 
So nothing new. No, uh, there's actually three that I'm trying to finalize with one. One is in uh, Bosnia. The other is in Argentina. They tend to get a lot of international ones. Uh, I do a lot of local user group meetings. So when I go to a city, I tend to do that. So I announce those uh, uh, via social media. So none of those are on the current schedule. I've done five or six of them already earlier this year, but there'll be more coming. Mm. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you again, Ken, for taking the time and uh Best of uh, best of luck on on the audio book and all these other projects you got going on, and uh, hope to meet you soon. I'm gonna appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Alrighty. And that was part two of my interview with Ken Rubin, the author of Essential Scrum. For all of the links and information that was discussed during this podcast, check out the show notes, and also be sure to subscribe. This is Armin Morabian with Portofino Media, and thanks again for listening.